Welcome back to Sloydcast. This is your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined today with Mike. We got some new mics, Hannah. <laughs> we're joined today with Mike Abbott, and uh, we're honored to have him on here because almost every British craftsperson we've spoken to so far has mentioned Mike as a part of their journey, um, inspiring them. And uh, a lot of them, well, I guess a few of them, actually working with you, Owen and Barn. So yeah, so welcome, Mike. Yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, especially having heard Barn and Owen singing my praises, <laughs> which, which uh, I'd forgot. I wasn't, I wasn't actually aware how 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 grateful Owen was for his time. Yeah, it could be a bit of a miserable git at times. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you, Owen. I really appreciated what you said. And. <laughs> um, for those who don't who don't know who Mike is, uh, I'm gonna give a little bit of an intro. Um, but I I definitely have been thinking about this, and and I see you as kind of the godfather of green woodworking in the UK, um, just based on the work that you've done and the number of people that have come through your courses and through your kind of uh, well, just even your books too. I mean, Maddie Whitaker, he he mentioned that seeing your book one time at some random course was kind of what sparked the whole thing for him so um yeah that, that book it, it's you know it sounds a bit of a cliche but I don't really know where it came from you know I started writing it one November and uh finished writing it the following May and it came out in October and uh yeah it was like the immaculate immaculate conception really <laughs> you know it just just appeared there and it, 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 it when I talked to um the guys that published it, you know, I said, are you ever likely to go to, to a reprint? And they said, well, I don't know. We'll just have to see what happens, you know? And it's, it's, I think it's reprinted nine or 10 times. Wow. Really? I didn't know that. That's so, yeah. Yeah. We need it. We need to get a copy. We certainly do. You've not got one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's different stories. A lot of people saying it's the best book I wrote, but uh, I've got two other ones as well, which I'm, which are still in print. So <laughs> you want to get those? <laughs> we'll see. We have to, we have to build up our, we have a little library building up. Yes. Um, yeah. So Mike, can you tell us what you're, where you live and a little bit about what your life is like as it stands now? Yeah. I live in a quaint little cottage in a rural county called Herefordshire between Birmingham and Wales. Uh, with Owen about four miles to the east of us and Yoav about four miles to the north of us. So we're quite a little hub of greenwood activities here. There are lots of other greenwood workers around here as well. There's a woman called Gudrun Lights you may may have not heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, I live in the house uh, with my wife Tamsin, who's a successful stained glass artist. You can all Google her and see the beautiful stuff. In fact, she's got uh, uh, a really, really nice work going off to some folks in Oregon. Mm for their sweat lodge i think nice uh yeah that's where i live awesome and are you what what is your day-to-day -day kind of like now because you've taught classes for courses for longer than mike and i have been alive um <laughs> 1985 yeah. yeah yeah and it's half my life and that's yeah 70 years just about so nice. uh uh, but it, the, my life, it, it's varied, which is nice. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, it always has been varied. Uh, I tend to, or I used to anyway, you know, I'm, I'm at least semi-retired now, but uh, I would move out. When, do your clocks, oh, you've got all sorts of funny times, haven't you there? But in the UK, we, <laughs> had our, we shift an hour uh, and, uh, yeah, go into summertime. And when that happens, then we would set up out in the woods for the summer 
And then sometime in September, I would pack up and then come back home in the winter. Mm. Um, so I'd be pretty well running courses. Uh, well, we'd usually start May to September. Yeah, we'd have all this. Uh, we'd have a cracking time, actually, um, setting the workshop up with a whole gang of people and then run the courses through till September. And in the winter, in the old days, I would make chairs. I used to actually get orders for chairs um, and do any writing and things like that, really, and mm. just kick around the place. Awesome. That's my, that's my uh, yeah, sort of annual cycle, really. Are you still um, running any classes or making anything? I mean, I assume you still make things, but um, is it is it, well, is it just geared down a fair bit? Uh, well, COVID hasn't helped a great, well, it hasn't helped uh, the work situation very much. Uh, I had to uh, call off some classes last year and only run with two people on a course as, a, as opposed to four. I've scaled down now to four. I used to have seven or eight people on a course mm -hmm. in the past. Uh, and then I would have assistants, you know, like Owen and Barn and all the other guys. Um, you have to keep reminding me what you just asked me. <laughs> what was okay. the question? Uh, oh, uh, you know, if I scale down a bit. So, yes, I have scaled down. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll have uh, ideally about seven five-day courses a year. So, oh, wow. you know, th 35 days a year, so-called hmm. work. And, I, I, you know, I've got it all set up quite nicely. Right. And I've also sort of swung things around to making greenwood chairs so that, I don't need to do an awful lot of sharpening. Mm. That's that's that was a fairly important <laughs> decision in my life. When Joe, you know, Joe Joe Wood was my assistant for a couple of years as well. Oh, okay, nice. And she actually used to get a lot of pleasure sharpening tools, and that made me lazy. So <laughs> ever since then, I've I've tried things to do that only require blunt tools. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a perpetually uh, lazy sharpener. So mm, I love sharpening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Other, and Some have, people do. It's great. Yeah, well, you two. Yeah, it's good that you two are working together. It's a good. It's a good relationship. Yeah, I, should, I should have you sharpen all my tools, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mike, you were, you've been one of our most uh, prepared guests, I would say, and not. Um, I don't mean that as a, uh, you know, against anybody, but we had a lot of emails back and forth, and you were doing a lot of thinking um, about your life and the work you've done, and. Um, you gave us a, kind of a nice little outline here, um, but I just I just wanted you to maybe go back to what was the first the first instance where you were set on this journey towards green woodworking. Uh, yeah, well, you caught me at a good time because uh, it's my seventieth birthday coming up in three months' time. So I got together with my old mate Nick Gibbs, who publishes now he's now publishing a magazine called Quirkus. And um, so hopefully he's going to do a few articles to celebrate my 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. So that got me thinking. And I, in fact, I, it's a good thing we're not on Zoom because this room, <laughs> it's only a small room and it's completely cluttered with old diaries and cardboard <laughs> boxes. And uh, it's a real mess. And I've, I've, I've had great fun, actually, the last few days just trawling through all that stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then writing some of it down for Nick. So yeah, the, the, the big occasion for me was when I um, I was actually working for an organisation called Runcorn Newtown Development Corporation. I was working as a gardener there, and they were <clears throat> training their staff and asked me what sort of training I'd be interested in. And I sort of looked. I, I, I did a degree, an academic degree, which really didn't you know didn't really interest me that much. So. 
um, these guys come along and, you know, what training do you want? I don't know. I like trees. <laughs> right. You're going on an arboriculture course. And I'd never heard, never heard the word, you know, uh, for those who still haven't heard it, it's basically the, the care of amenity trees and individual trees. There's a lot of tree surgery in it and, yeah. you know, small woodland management. So I did that and that was, I think, six spells of two weeks each. And they sent me off to the local, um, the local agricultural college. Hmm. And there was a, I was um, just a walk, walk, walking around the grounds one day and this stranger comes up to me and says, can you tell me where the arboriculture is? It looks like that's where you're doing a course. <laughs> and I was so excited, you know, somebody recognizes me as a tree man. You know, <laughs> so I actually had had an identity, which really had a big impact on me. But the other thing that had a big impact was rooting through the library. One day I came across this book called Woodland Crafts in Britain by Herbert Edlin. Um, and it is it is a classic. And I think it was the first edition, which was published in 1949. And basically what he was doing, he was paid by the Forestry Commission to, to uh, produce this book. Hmm. And he was going around the country, finding out and detailing and photographing all the woodland craft, yeah, all the woodland crafts that he could um, get hold of. But then in '73, uh, they did a second edition. So this is 24 years. Like everything is 24 years. <laughs> Neil, Neil Young and Stephen Stills have got a lot to go, uh, answer for. Uh, and he wrote in his book there, he's, he, he was recapping and say, you know, outlining all the crafts that had died just in that 24 years since the first edition came about. And just one little sentence, which is imprinted on my mind, he says, no one could envisage that any young people will ever take up any of these trades again. <laughs> and now, you know, just two or three miles up the road from me, uh, you've got the, the pole lathe bowl gathering happens every right. year and completely even to me in you know when the revival was starting to get underway it was quite inconceivable that mm. um there would be a whole load of people turning bowls on the pole lathe and I was, I was really quite taken aback when robin wood started up and he was putting out that he was the only person in the world who was doing it which he was at the time um and he didn't run courses and you know i didn't really think yeah, I just thought turning bowls on the pole is a pretty self-destructive thing to do, quite honestly, <laughs> when you could do spindle turning. But there's so many, only so many chair legs that people want, really. So <laughs> uh, I'm just amazed at the likes of, yeah, Robin and now Yoav and Owen and everybody, you know, turning bowls on the pole. Oh, yeah, well done. Great. Yeah, I yeah. can imagine. I'm a so anyway... Yeah, you know, that's what set me off in a direction, me as a tree man. So I, I went back to the farm where I was living and cobbled together pole lathe with just a paragraph of description in the book and a couple of photos, one from the outside of the Bodger's hut and one of a, a close-up of the, of the guy turning turning a chair leg. There were a few pictures of shaving horses and things like that, but basically that's all I had to go on in those huh. days. Wow. Uh, and yeah. So in that so, in that book, does he does he come across anybody that's turning bowls on the pole lathe? Yes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was a thing that happened. Well, there were two places. Place, well, no, three in the British Isles. There was Bucklebury, uh, which is on the outskirts of London, and that's where George Laley was turning bowls. Okay. And that's the guy that Robin Wood um, he uh, picks up on all the stuff they've got of his right. in, a, in a museum in Reading, a town called Reading. Uh, so George Laley, and he was he was doing I don't know when he he packed up probably 
probably in the 40s or 50s, something like that. But it was a, a bigger thing, actually, out in Wales, uh, if I remember correctly, a little village called Abercuch. Um, and there, there's a, again, uh, just, just pictures in my head somewhere or other, I think. Hang on a minute. Oh. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Can you see? <laughs> um, if I remember correctly, there's there's a guy there turning all sorts of stuff on a bowl. Like, huge, great, big uh, sycamore bowls and huh. such like. That's cool. Yeah. I want to track that book it down. An, yeah. It is an amazing book. Because yeah. yeah. I've been reading yeah. uh, Woodwork in Estonia. I don't know if you've cut. Yes, uh, Drew Drew mentioned that in Drew Langston mentioned that in in one of his early books, I think, and I never got hold of that. Yeah, but. it's it sounds very similar, like the Estonian version, but there's a it, it's it's like a it's a catalog of all the woodland crafts and lore and traditions and and so on. So it sounds like that the woodland crafts in Britain is very similar. Right. Yeah. 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 So from that polleth, uh, what was kind of the next? next thing for you that drew you along your journey well that was very much a, a sort of hobby uh i was working i think i was working in a tree nursery oh, okay. um so yeah any bits of tree that didn't make the grade as as uh you know to be sold as a tree i'd bring bits back and turn them into various things egg uh, egg cups i was actually that was end grain turning uh, hmm. uh it took me a long time actually to pluck up courage to put a number of legs together to make a chair because in those days it was all everything uh to do with pole turning was to do with windsor chairs mm. you know the the chair bodger tradition okay uh and you had to get hold of a nice elm plank and adds a seat out there was quite a lot to make in a windsor chair so it was probably some time before i actually made a, a windsor chair um but having yeah, having encountered this bloke and discovered I was a tree man, uh, I then wanted to go and do a, a postgraduate course in amenity forestry uh, and uh, Bangor University in North Wales specialised in those courses. But they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a, a proper grade in biology. <laughs> so I then, you know, having thought it'd be nice to be a student again, and they were paying nice grants at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I then looked around and found this course called a DMS, a Diploma in Management Studies with a Recreation Endorsement. Um, and I thought, recreation, yeah, let's sort of give that a go. <laughs> so signed signed up for that and they accepted me on that one, which started in the autumn, fall, as you would call it. Uh, and so about Easter time, I packed up the job in the nursery, took with me you know, a rucksack with £100, a few tools and a copy of Walden, <laughs> by Henry David Thoreau. Uh, it's a good American book, and that you can you can trace almost anything that's any good at all back to that one particular book. Although I think he was a bit of a nutcase, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> so I headed off uh, to discover the woody world and to track down woody people and people who were making a living doing things with wood. So the first porter call was a guy called Gwyndaf Breeze, who was based, and he was paid full time to to do woodwork at a place called St Fagan's Folk Museum in South Wales. And he was making call spoons, cowl spoons. I can't remember. You, yeah, you, you discussed that <laughs> one with Owen, didn't you, which he, he's now making. Um, and he showed me, spent whatever it was, 20 minutes or so making a spoon, showed me how to make one with this Tuka Kam special hook tool for producing them. And I said, yeah, but what about this pole, eh? That's what I'm really interested in. <laughs> and 
he kind of said, what do you want to see that for? <laughs> uh, but he showed me a pole lathe. Uh, and this being in Wales, he was more into the tradition of turning bowls than he was into turning chair legs. Um, so we were a bit at cross purposes at that. So he then took me back into his workshop and showed me how he turned bowls on a on a, an electric lathe, but using two centres like you would do on a pole lathe. Mm. Quite interesting, I think. Mm. Uh, but I didn't take a lot of interest in that. <laughs> but I, I then went on to Pembrokeshire, which is you know butting up against the Irish Sea. Went into a craft shop there, and we got chatting. And they had some coal spoons there, and told me that the guy who had been making for them uh, had retired. Would have been interested in making some. So yeah, I'm an expert. <laughs> I know all about coal spoons. Uh, so I went back to the farm where I was stopping over with a friend and cut down a whole big sycamore tree. And without, I took a calm and probably without a sharp axe either, I managed to cobble together a dozen spoons and sold them to this guy for about a pound each, I think, is what he gave me. Because he had a whole tub full of Moroccan handmade spoons for, I'm sure they were less than a pound each. Uh and anyway, then I trotted on through Ireland and Scotland and tracked down quite a few people who'd set up little craft workshops. You know, the, a lot of them were people who'd escaped the rat race, made of, made enough money to buy a, a bit of property and were going to then make beautiful craft objects and then would discover some little sideline, you know, probably making use of leftovers. And so they'd then take on a local kid and maybe a couple of people and they would be start churning these things out. And so they would end up with a sort of small manufacturing business <laughs> and they would be on the phone to, to you know, to shops trying to sell these things. And uh, they ended up in their own funny little rat race again. <laughs> uh, and I saw that. I saw that several times. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't give you names, but... Uh, it was quite a common thing, and so I was a little bit disillusioned. I, I didn't, I didn't find anyone really. Well, in fact, I say like like in Edlin's book, um, but they had to work bloody hard. You know, they would have been working ten hours a day, six days a week, out in all weathers and things as well. So I then thought, in fact, by the time I got to Scotland, and I, I I'd run out of money by then, and got a job working as an assistant youth hostel warden, uh, and I just went off. You know, my one day a week and went off discovering mountain bothies. Do you know what bothies are? No. Little, little, no. little huts that uh, up in the Cairngorm Mountains, I mean, you know, probably nothing by your standards, but uh, they're quite wild and remote by British standards. And yeah, you get these little buildings there. So I'd go off huh. there and just sort of hang out and dream and think about what I would like to do. So then when I got on my DMS course, I had... Um, three months to carry out a project of my own choice so i looked in basically into the viability of small woodlands in the uk and how one could carve out well basically yeah uh you know how you could get the public to come along and spend money um uh enjoying the woodlands mm. yeah i wanted to get i wanted to get people back in touch with woodlands because back in those days in the 70s you know everything was modern and steel right. and, and uh yeah wood no nobody was interested in wood or trees or anything like that in, in those days but i kind of made it my life's work to to try and get people and woods back together again hmm. and you know i i can i can feel you know quite pleased that i played some something of a role in that process really that's mm. awesome that's great 
there's a couple of things you said earlier I wanted to bring up because you mentioned uh, when you were in Wales, you said that uh, the fellow you met, he wasn't very interested in, in chair parts because he was in Wales. Mm. Is that, were you hinting at in Wales, they were, they didn't really make chairs? Uh, well, they made, there's a guy um, ran some courses over at Drew Langston. I'll, I'll, I'll keep bouncing back to Drew Langston because right. he was my, one of my, another of my sources of inspiration with the place he set up. But, wow. Yeah. I, I, try and get around to that one um and he met up with a guy called john brown who was uh he made welsh stick chairs so welsh stick chairs by its name sort of implies getting a slab of wood and drilling some holes and bunging some sticks in underneath and some sticks out the top i'm uh, sorry <laughs> any welsh stick makers are going to be a bit pissed off with that description um but th- that that was welsh chair making they didn't do any of this fancy turning turning that they did in high wickham whereas they spent a lot more time they, well they, a lot of it actually comes down to the kind of trees that grow where you know where they grow right. so around high wickham which is where the chair bodges were it was just stand after stand of big straight uh beech trees mm. you know, nice well not big trees you know nice nice straight beech trees perfect for turning chair legs wow. um in wales you, you you tend to get a lot of sycamore trees huh. and that lends itself nicely to treen you know bowls spoons right. that kind right. of thing okay so interesting cool that that's presumably that's why that tradition um you know why that tradition flourished there. yeah yeah i was just wondering that they didn't have chair no <laughs> they don't <laughs> They don't have chairs in Wales. I don't know if there's like some tension between England and Wales or. Yeah. Hey, oh, there is a bit. Yeah. Probably like you have between different states. In Wales, they sit on the ground. <laughs> They're too busy farming. Yeah. Um, so you were doing the uh, uh, recreation management. Is that that's the term? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's not a term that many people will recognize, I doubt. I don't know whether it's more or less popular now than it, it was then. But um, yeah, the, the people who were on the on the course were working in sports halls, um, you know, sort of gyms and swimming pools and things like that. And I, yeah, I turned up fresh from my travels with a smelly old rucksack and <laughs> some very worn out smelly clothes. <laughs> and uh, but what what I was able to do, um, you know, this was now five years since I'd wasted three years doing my undergraduate course. And so we resurrected the camping and rambling club and had use of a minibus. And um, we were able to go out and buy a whole load of Van Gogh tents and camping equipment, things like that. So we just went off every other weekend. And I considered that to fall within recreation. And so, uh, you know, one of my first projects was just writing up how we organized all that and it was great you know i had shopping lists and things like that. this is all stuff that stood me in good stead in in later years you know when i was running courses how to cater for a whole bunch of people and they would all go walking up the big mountains and things and i'd go pottering around the, the country lanes with a few other people hmm. uh, and then get back and do the cooking and and then you know have, have fun in the evening nice so from there how did you end up in germany in the black forest the black uh, forest did it in the black forest <laughs> yeah uh i uh i finished yeah finished my travels at, at the youth hostel in aviemore and i must have spent what three three months there earning seven pound a week i think so i was you know scrounging food off all the people who who were stopping over there and we had a whole train of fascinating people uh through there and then the following Christmas, I got a letter from one of these people that I'd spent some time with saying that she was going to have our baby. And uh, 
she wasn't laying any pressure on me, but mm. uh, you know, thought I'd better know. So she then came over in March while I was uh, finishing off this course. And when the course was finished, we went over to Germany so that she, the idea was that she would then finish off a course that she'd interrupted because um, <laughs> of the baby and me. As it turns out, she didn't go back and do her course. And I ended up working a couple of years for a landscaping company in the Black Forest. It may sound very romantic, but we were just putting down concrete block car parks most of the time. <laughs> if ever a lawn was needed, then I was the Englishman. I would have to make a beautiful English lawn. But you know, most of the time, we were just humping lumps of concrete around. So that's what took me to the Black Forest. But the interesting thing about the Black Forest was, uh, you know, you, you think of it as one great big um, uniform forest. But in fact, um, as what I understood was it's owned in lots of little tiny pockets by local villagers and they would go out for a day or two every year and do planting and a bit of woodland management mm. and then when it was all felled at the end of the day by the forestry department they would get a cut of the money that came from it oh. so they were much more in involved in their woodlands than we were here you know i came back to to britain and and yeah nobody was really interested in woodlands at all mm. wow that's that's a, such a stark difference from here because even in england i think woodlands are I don't know. This might be just my, from my vantage at the very least, they seem better managed than here. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just look. That's an interesting. Thing. Just looking yeah. around where we live. Um, yeah. I mean, most people don't regard their forest very, very highly, you know, or I shouldn't say that. I think in America, the idea of a forest is not what uh, their idea of a forest is a sick forest, not a healthy forest. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, that's it. Yeah, there's there's an interesting difference between the the two words, forest and woodland, mm -hmm. um, and it's over here. It's probably kicked off. We had Dutch elm disease came in in '93. Mm -hmm. In in no, sorry, in 1973, um, and killed off an awful lot of elm trees, and they were really very prominent in our countryside. Mm -hmm. They 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 were the main trees in the hedgerows and such, and so they set up a thing called the Tree Council. And they had a big high profile, very high profile campaign uh, called Plant a Tree in 73. Hmm. And yeah. I think that combined with the oil crisis and people just starting to realize that, you know, nature wasn't infinite. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell had come out with Big Yellow Taxi a few years earlier. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, the tide was just starting to turn. Um, and uh, I can't remember. Did I tell you about this line from Edlin's book about how? He never thought that people yeah, would yeah. take up woodland craft mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Whereas it was only five years after that when Drew Langsner and John Alexander wrote their their books about woodland crafts and how to actually do these things. Mm. Uh, and um, it was a few years till they filtered across. <laughs> Somebody brought a rowing boat across the Atlantic with a couple of these copies of these books. And I got hold of those. Um, when, yeah, when I came back from Germany, I came back, uh, in fact, I, I came back especially to take a job uh, supervising a youth training scheme um, in the village where I grew up. Uh, so basically I was being paid, it turned out, paid for three years to look after a bunch of teenagers um, clearing up uh, the woodlands where I used to play. So, you know, clearing up all the trees that had been killed by Dutch elm disease, mm. then carving out footpaths making picnic tables we built a bridge nice um 
and there was no pressure on us you know basically i was being paid to keep these kids off the streets really <laughs> yeah. you know they were kids who hadn't got jobs and hadn't got onto any other placements right and in a way i kind of went native what i think what was i, I was about 35 then and i was working with these kids who were in the i was about 30 yeah these kids who were in their teens mm. and we, we just had had a great time and you know i, I was this is where I was able to start putting in, into action some of the things I'd worked out when I was on my recreation management course. And it sneaked up on me, you know, okay, so we had to do all this work and I had these half dozen teenagers full of energy to help me. But uh, it started off me thinking, oh, these are, you know, this is a source of free labor, you know, that I've got to make them do what I want, what I want them to do. <laughs> uh, but then we built a shed you know, for when the wet weather was no good. And I, I put a pole lathe up there, basically just so I could play about on that, you know, while the kids were in the in the shed playing cards or playing darts or whatever <laughs> they were doing. And they would come out and they'd have a look and say, what are you doing, Mike? And because I wasn't laying it on them, I wasn't t- saying, you've got to learn this or that the other. You know, I, <laughs> I had to fight them off, you know, leave it alone, this is my toy. You know? <laughs> and they, they would really show an interest in all this. Huh. And then we got into making... Um, tool handles you know because we were about three miles from our depot and so if we had an axe and somebody broke the axe handle then i had the option of either packing up the whole kit and us going into town for half a day you know to order a new axe or for me to say to one of these kids look there's an ash tree cut that down here's a few tools uh make a new axe handle mm. and it it worked out nicely and you know at first our axe handles would last about a day you know because we were using the we weren't using strong enough wood and we we learned you know we we you know we had we had herbert edlin's book and we might possibly have had uh drew's country woodcraft book by then i think uh and then there was another guy called jack hill another english um yeah he wrote several books and he wrote the complete practical book of country crafts and i think we had his book to look through but the thing you've got to remember back in those days, you know, you couldn't go home and Google it or right. look it up on YouTube or anything like that. It was if it wasn't in a book or if you didn't meet somebody who knew how to do it, that was it. Yeah, it was, it was either that or it was trial and error. And that's how we did it. You know, we had three years basically on government money. It was the first three years of uh, British research and development into Greenwood crafts. Really. <laughs> Very nice. I, I like that. <laughs> Mike, can you tell us a little bit about setting up Living Wood Training in 1985? Uh, living Wood Training, yeah. Um, yes, I, so I did the, the youth training scheme for three years, and then uh, I took a year unemployed, voluntary redundancy and spent a year unemployed living in the city, which, oh boy, I didn't like that. <laughs> My salvation was this place called Windmill Hill City Farm, just a mile or so down the road. Yeah, and uh, so I volunteered there and built what they called a project room, and then they asked me to run one or two courses there, um, which I did, and then everything all all piled together. I just read, fine. Although I'd seen Drew's Country Woodcraft book, uh, I read Woodworking Magazine, uh, not Wood, Fine Woodworking. That's mm. it. And they had an article about Dave Sawyer running a course at Drew Langsmith's place, making this beautiful chair. Uh, funnily enough, when I, I met Dave many years later, he said, actually, it was an Italian chair. So it sort of went across the Atlantic one way and then came back again <laughs> afterwards. But, uh, so that inspired me. And seeing the photos of the place where he was doing it, it was just mind-boggling. And then they were running a pilot scheme 
for training and anyone who could run a course and get unemployed people to come on the course, they would pay for the people to, to come along. Mm. So I got paid and the people had the course paid for them. And then, um, and then my granny died, my dear old granny, who, you know, she, she was the one who taught me to love woodlands and mm. yeah. So took me for walks out there and things like that. And she died in Christmas of 84 and then it took a while for things to be sorted out. And she, she left a thousand pounds to me and a thousand pounds to my sister. And that was it. That was the sum total of her legacy. Mm. And then they started this scheme called the Enterprise Allowance. And anyone who wanted to start a business and had a thousand pounds to invest, they would then pay them 40 pounds a week for the first year. Mm. And so everything slotted in. And, you know, I just you know, had no alternative but to go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, there was quite a few people in Britain, uh, and it may be, you know, that that's that's why things took off in Britain because by then th there was a whole load of people on these government-funded schemes mm. who'd all been doing various things associated with the landscape, and it was then you know, a matter of sort of the survival of the fittest. Although then for another year, so I'd had a, a year being getting government money um, to uh, the kids, and then a year on unemployed, I'd been paid for volunteering and then uh, for the next year i was uh, had all the courses that i was running they were all paid for you know the people who came on the courses had them all paid for out of government money so yeah it was five years government research you know so not like quite like nasa you know, but <laughs> <laughs> the british equivalent of nasa <laughs> so we got pole lays you got space rockets <laughs> Which one did more good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would argue that the poly thin. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought that was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was like your springboard to come up with this whole green woodworking school. and. Uh... Yeah. So I set up uh, Living With Training and, and just started running courses and managed to move out into the woodlands. I, I kept moving around regularly from woodland to woodland. Um, and... And then, yeah, lots of little breaks happened. Somebody told me, uh, you know, there was a, sh a thing called the Woodworker Show, which happened in London. And then they were going to try out having one in um, in Bristol, which was, you know, where I was. Mm. And so, you know, this guy suggested, got an American guy called Charles Sterling, runs a, a shop called Bristol Design, still going after all these years, apparently. Uh, give him a plug. Hi, Charles. <laughs> um, and he said, yeah, they'll be running a show in Bristol. Why don't you ask them? And I, and I thought, you know, this is a place where they're going to be selling glossy power glaze and planar thicknesses. You know, they won't want me there. But anyway, they said, come along. And I set up and, yeah, there were rows of seats in front of all these shiny lathes and things. And I thought, you know, they'll just laugh at me. But mm. everybody showed interest. And the lovely thing was that you'd get teenage kids come along and they'd say, let's have a go. And, and they'd take to it straight away. Right. And then you get some guy who's you know, been paid lots of money to demonstrate a power glaze and he'd have a go on this thing. <laughs> Couldn't come to terms with it at all because the funny thing kept going backwards. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so we all had a good laugh. Yeah. And I, so, you know, then I went to do the show in London and that's where I met a guy called Stuart King. I was most surprised because I thought there were probably only about one or two people who'd ever discovered this thing called the pole lathe. And then there I was set up next to Stuart King, whose father, um, had i don't think he was a chair bodger but he grew up in and around high wickham and so he knew the tradition very well and he he was very good actually very polite you know he could have 
sort of just called me a, an imposter, you know, because <laughs> I was this semi-educated kid who'd done a recreation management course and was fooling about the whole time. And he was a serious pole lather to show him people mm. the tradition and things. But no, he was he was good to me. Is, and, is Stuart uh, the guy that uh, filmed um, the uh, the Romani pole turner? Yeah. Okay. That's Stuart. Yeah. Yeah. He's very good. Um, if we get around to the World Turning Conference, we got to talking about that in 93, mm -hmm. um, run by a guy called Albert Lecoff. And it was, I've forgotten where it was in the States, but it was, it was somewhere over your side of the Atlantic. And they invited Stuart and myself to go along there. And Don Weber, have you come across Don Weber? Uh, you must I don't think track so. him down. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, get him singing. He's he started. He spent his first seven years in Wales, and then he's he's grown up in California. And I think he's in. Uh, he was in Mendocino for a long time, and then I think he's moved over to where the hillbillies are in uh, <laughs> in sort of Kentucky or something like that. <laughs> um, so there was him, and then there was John Alexander, as he then was became Jenny. Mm -hmm. And so they asked the four of us to do a presentation. We've skipped now to 1993. It's a bit boring in between. That's so, fine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Stuart and I came over to the UK. And that's where I met up with Drew. By then, I'd, I'd written my book, Green Woodwork. Like I say, there's not much to say about it, actually. I was going to write all sorts of stuff about how it came about. But basically, I, I was on a ferry and started writing it. And, yeah, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And, um, yeah, these people published it. And it came out so my book was called green woodwork but again um it's hard for you youngsters to imagine what it was like but then i remember jack hill said i think there's an american got a, a book coming out a similar sort of title so i went down to the library you still have libraries over there yeah? yes yeah we do yeah, every county I went, does. To <laughs> I went to the reference library which is where they you know they keep all the special books and i said have you come across any american books called green woodwork or something like that and they looked around and said, no, 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 nothing like that. So I went ahead and wrote wrote the book. And just before it was published, I think I must have got hold of Drew's book called Green Woodworking. Right. There's no, really no difference between green woodwork and green woodworking at all. Um, <laughs> and the only reason I know that is because I, I was just reading the, the, the acknowledgements the other day. And I did say that, you know, I, there was going to be some clash, but honest, honest gov, I didn't hadn't seen his book before I wrote mine, uh, and it was nice. It was I don't know if you know. Yeah, there's a guy over here called Donovan. Came about about the same time as Bob Dylan. You had over mm -hmm. there. And, uh, they both came from the same tradition, really. What's what's the name of the guy that inspired Bob Dylan? Anyway, so uh, yeah, so Drew and I were both inspired by a very similar tradition. He he quotes Herbert Edlin's book as well. Mm. And so we came up with two different takes on the same subject. I think the term green woodworking was first coined by John Alexander when huh. um, he was, uh, um, you know, running his courses at Drew's place. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's something people are always asking, you know, who came up with this term green woodwork. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Jenny Alexander can uh, claim that one. Drew might, might be able to cast more on it when you get him to do your podcast. Yeah, we've got to get him on soon. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I remember um, I was, I don't know if you're, are you, you're on Facebook, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, back when I... I'm on Instagram now, thanks to you guys as well. <laughs> yes, I saw that. Yeah. Um, well, back, it's probably, I, I know it still is around because Mike actually looked at it recently, but mm. there's a, a group on there green woodworking and spoon carving and sloyd or something along those mm -hmm. lines yeah but back yeah. back in 
that was probably like 2012, 2013. There was a huge, uh, sometimes heated discussion. I think Jared actually egged it on. What is green woodworking? <laughs> and like, you know, it, it, it was, it was really educational because there was a lot of people giving their take on what it means. And at the time, yeah. at the time, I didn't really know that the term was kind of a new term. I mean, you know, yeah, relatively yeah. speaking, it's not been in the lexicon for very long. Right. Um, it's right. If you look back, you won't find any reference to it at all until early seventies. Yeah. The the other thing that uh, I I don't think I came across the American usage of the the term until after Drew's book Greenwood Working came out. Mm. Because um, at one point, when I was unemployed, I went for a job to a place called Telford. And uh, I was going for a job as a ranger. And then they mentioned this thing called the Greenwood Trust. And my little ears pricked up and I, I suddenly took an interest in that and forgot about the job <laughs> and got quite involved with the Greenwood Trust. So uh, they were established, I think, in 1984. Mm. So uh, I probably took that term from from the greenwood trust more than i did from uh you american guys yeah. <laughs> so where they came up with their name again i don't know they might you know might, yeah who knows it's not a very common <laughs> term here in the u.s anymore i mean mostly you know people just use woodworking uh right yeah yeah is that right yeah it's it is quite distinct over here i think although the, you know the the it's, it's blurring a little bit you know, because all wood starts off green and ends up seasoned. Right. Yeah, so, it's definitely one of those things. If you say it, people will ask, "What do you mean?" Yeah, what do you mean green? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has it has, a, cut. has a lot of different meanings. You know, that's. I think it's still. I I would I would argue it's still a term we're kind of debating mm. in some ways exactly what is and what isn't green woodworking. Yeah. You, again, you've got an organization over there called Greenwood, haven't you? Um, oh, God, I forget the name of the guys behind it. I know Don Webber's been involved in that. Huh. I think Brian Box. Really? Um, and they're doing work out in Honduras and hmm. uh, yeah, places in Central and South huh. America. And they they ha certainly have used pole lays down there with these guys. You just have to Google it. Um, there's some quite prominent American show makers. I apologize if any of you... Oh, you know, I, I have, I've come across this uh, at some point. I saw their website. Hmm. Mm. Um, mm. it's a big place you've got a lot of people over there so you're yeah, not expecting to it, is, it is a big place very much so <laughs> although they're dying quite rapidly I gather yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> sorry shouldn't say it like that <laughs> yeah not as bad as you think yeah. um, <laughs> so you, that was so you came here and was it that was 93 you came over yeah yeah so yeah. I'm really curious at that time you know there's no I mean I guess there was like just starting to be some internet uh, but it wasn't like everyone had internet and uh, I was actually talking to my dad last night and he was telling me mm. when the internet first came around, it was like, people would joke about it. Like, Oh yeah, the internet, that you know, like it wasn't, it was just this new thing. And you know, in five years you wouldn't even know what it was. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So at that time, if I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I actually Googled it, which you can do of course now to find out when YouTube started and it was 2005. If huh. I remember. Yeah. It hasn't been around I for that long. That. Mm -hmm. So, and I know Robin Wood, was jumping on on that fairly soon and we actually got a little bit crossways on you know because uh i can't remember what it was about but uh yeah he, he and his then wife were much more savvy at it than than we were here um but it was i remember thinking at the time why why is any anyone put all this effort into making films and putting up there for free and things now but yeah of course everyone's doing it and right. you know, some people are earning money from it as well yeah it's pretty wild but yeah. i'm just curious yeah. at that time 
organizing a trip to the u.s what was that like were you i mean were you sending letters phone calls what yeah was i was just looking through the file i've got about seven or eight letters which uh you know um stuart king and i were were bouncing across to each other and then albert lakoff um you know it, it was all done by letters hmm. uh, it was yeah uh, no yeah because phone calls cost the earth and right so there was no <laughs> yeah. phone calls uh no emails yeah it was all done by letters that's so amazing yeah. um yeah. we you know it is it's like kind of a trope now, but you know, we just can't even our generation, the millennial, the older millennials yeah. and anyone younger than yeah. us, it's hard for us to imagine, you know? Yeah, you can't, you can't imagine it. Yeah. Uh, and it was only, you know, this last few days when I was researching stuff, uh, you know, I realized just how recent all this has been. And I'm quite certain this is one of the major reasons why everything's taken off now in this last mm. 10 years, because instead of having to spend two years struggling, you know, looking at a, a, a paragraph in a book and a, and a few photographs, uh, there's no end, absolutely no end mm. of videos you, oh, yeah. can, you can look at and get the, the utmost detail. And then, and then there's all the Facebook groups and in, Instagram and things like that and everyone bouncing ideas back off each other. Right. right. Uh, and then things like, I mean, you guys specifically call yourselves Sloyd, so... We haven't even mentioned all that stuff and and Spoonfest, you know that was a, a big breakthrough again. You know, all credit to Robin Wood and and to Barn on getting that together, and that that's just you know gone exponential. Right. You know, yeah, it does yeah. seem like the internet has been has played a really prominent part in in mm. having mm. in having it spread so fast. Right. And I'm just yeah. curious with you know you you mentioned that line from uh, from Headland's book and mm. reading that. What is it like seeing this explosion? Because this is kind of like your life's work in a way to, to spread. It is. Yeah. I mean, there was a point in my life, probably in the 90, early 90s, we were going through a bit of a recession and a few other people were starting to do the same. And I was getting quite possessive, you know, and I, yeah. I'd probably upset a few people by <laughs> saying, this is my patch, keep off, you know. Um, but then we also, you know, got to a point where, uh, there were so many people interested. I was sending them off to the Greenwood Trust and other places. And now, you know, I've got a whole A4 sheet full of, uh, you know, places where people can go and learn if, if they don't want to come and learn with me. And it, it's just very, very satisfying. And, you know, the, the, the glow I got, you know, listening to, uh, well, in particular, Barn and, and uh, Owen, but, uh, you know, Amy and I've even forgotten the name of the other guy on this side. Um, Matt, and then it's also interesting Whitaker. hearing Jared, you know, mm -hmm. who I haven't met, and you know, I've never, I don't know how to communicate with him. Um, you know, swap some notes on uh, on Facebook, mm. but hearing all the things he had to say and what an influence he's been. There's this lovely sort of bouncing to and fro across the Atlantic now between people, and not only that, but and now um, Masashi over in Japan. Um, it, I, I was tickled when. I think was it uh I can't remember Yogi or, or Jared talking about Tomio over in Japan and oh yeah he attended a course with Mike Abbott. So it's funny what mm. I remember and what I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, there was a guy called Masashi who spent three 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 or five years over here uh learning with John Makepeace, if that means anything, leading furniture maker over here. No, not him, and with David Cole. He spent time working with David Cole, an interesting guy, doing stuff with steam bent furniture. Hmm. Uh and so then when the Paul Lathe Turners had their twentieth anniversary, I think, uh that was a frantic weekend as well. That's just when I published my third book, Going with the Grain. That was two thousand and eleven. 
And yeah, we had a week, especially for, I think it was four Japanese guys. And I think they brought their wives over as well. And that was great. And then the three of these Japanese guys had come to me quite separately. They'd all dropped on my book somewhere or other in various places in Japan. And so I put them all in touch with each other. And now there's a Japanese Green Woodworkers Association. Mm. And Masashi right. is doing really, really great things at Gifu College. And right. they've ho- he's hosted Drew doing his craft tours over there. Mm. So it's now sort of three-way thing. And then you've got, you know, mainland Europe. You've got, well, you obviously got the Sundqvist dynasty, Vili, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now Yoga. And uh, there's things going on in Denmark, and there's quite a lot happening in Holland. And the other thing, when I was at this World Turning Conference um, in 93, there was a German guy there. It was funny because they gave us four pole later. It's a great big hall to do our demonstration in, uh, our talk in. And it was it was at least half empty. And everybody was in a much smaller uh, side room watching this German guy doing really clever things on a very clever machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I spoke to him later. I said, you know, by the turn of the millennium, there, there may only be one or two green woodworkers over there now, but there'll be a thousand of you. Yeah. And I was a bit out there, but there are lots of German green woodworkers now as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's great seeing it's, yeah, it's tent- <laughs> evil tentacles <laughs> spread across the world. Co-opting <laughs> the minds of young and old alike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, we didn't mention this yet, but the, you set up the Association of Polaid Turners. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What was the impetus to set up an association and what does that stand to what what's the mission of that? I'm I'm not sure what what brought that about really, but this was 1990. I'd been running courses for about five years, and some of the people I'd trained were starting to set up. Uh, not really. There's a guy called Tim Wade. Hi Tim, if you ever listen, mm-hmm. uh, who'd learnt from Jack Hill as well, uh, and was running courses at his place. And I I had the feeling that it was going to take off, and I just thought it'd be good if we had a medium to sort of talk to each other really. Mm-hmm. So I, I arranged a meeting back at the city farm where um, where I'd been based in Bristol. And yeah, so the meeting started off there in April. And then we arranged to have our first gathering at the Greenwood Trust in September or October, I think it was. So we had about 40 or 50 people came along to that Uh and yeah, my favourite memory was this old army truck turning up with three very <laughs> ramshackle-looking guys climbed out of that, <laughs> and they were the uh, the Anglesey chair bodgers, mm. Hugh and oh god, like Stuart and Graham. That's right. And and I thought my first thought was, oh my god, what have we let loose here now? <laughs> uh, but they're lovely guys as well. Really, we had some great times with them, uh, and. Then we got some sensible people, you know, involved in the organization who were able to do the, the, the boring, sensible stuff. And it's still <laughs> going from strength to strength. And they they widened their remit to call itself the uh, Association of Polay Turners and Green Woodworkers. And uh, yeah. yeah. Is that the group? So, is that the group that puts on the Bodgers ball? That's it. They okay. put on the yeah. Bodgers Ball, yeah. We've, yeah. We've heard a lot and at the very that. first one, we had this, I've got to lay claim to the log to leg race. We thought it'd be good fun if we had, <laughs> we, in those days, it was, a, I think, about three teams of four, and we each had to make a leg and do it as quickly as possible. And I think I just noticed it took us 29 minutes for the four legs. That's good fun. Um, 
But so far as I know, young Ben Orford, the young Ben, he just had his 40th birthday. God, he's about 10 years older than you guys. Yeah. Um, he he is probably the, the reigning champion making two <laughs> matching chair legs in, I think, under six minutes from the wow. log. Under six minutes. Legs. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. incredible. Yeah. yeah. Let, let us know, anyone, if you know any better. <laughs> That's awesome. That's incredible. They, they, they slowed down since since they stopped putting the serious prize money on the competition. The likes of Ben and I have dropped out of that now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool. That sounds like a cool event, the Badgers Ball. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I only noticed again a week or so ago. They got one in the states, haven't they? I think they got this. Well, they were supposed to have the second one coming up, and it got called off through COVID. Oh, yeah, really? I think Here, they have got think... one. Yeah, they have got one in the states. Huh. Yeah, yeah, on, yeah. We were unaware. And I, I think, yeah, I think. Well, if you make contact with Don Weber, he can tell you more because I think he was doing a workshop there. Yeah. Okay, we have to get mm. involved more. In yeah, you've got to get him. just uh, just for his voice. Even if he doesn't talk any sense at all, just for his voice, he's got his most beautiful voice. <laughs> in fact, I was sat in a pub in Telford. We were talking, and it wasn't very full. It was a big, big place though, with about sort of, I don't know twenty or thirty tables, and we were sat sort of on the edge, facing into the, the the other people. And Don was sat on the other side of the table, looking at us, and he was talking. You know, he he just has tales and tales to tell. And the few people that were there just stopped their conversations and they couldn't just help but listen to what Don was talking about. And he was completely unknown to himself. Everybody in the pub pub was listening to what he had to say. (laughs) (laughs) He sounds like quite the character. He's he's good. He's good. Hi, Don. So uh, what is, you you mentioned buying Clissett Wood. Um, Mm. Yeah. That's where you live now. Uh, it's, no, it's not where I live. Oh, okay. um, what happened was, God, I haven't written this bit in the for the magazine yet, so uh, I've got to go from memory here. Uh, in fact, my wife Tamsin sat in the background in case I need nudging. Here. <laughs> but uh, I, I had left Bristol and had moved to this place called the Cotswolds, and um, I was living in what we call a winter let. It was holiday flats belonged to to a guy, and in the winter they didn't rent them out to you know to proper proper people, <laughs> just anyone who who wanted somewhere to live for the winter. They'd let them live there very cheaply. And yeah, I'd left my partner and daughter by then, and got together with this young lady who I'd met on a course, a lady called Tamsin, <laughs> and she came down, and we we slowly got together, and we were having a meal one time, and I picked up a letter. Um, and it, what it was was details of a woodland for sale, and we opened it. And this is a woodland in Herefordshire, which is where her mother had um, been and where Tamsin had spent some of her childhood, or her mother had spent her childhood. I can't remember which. Uh, and we, she wants she she's a very rare woman, and that she was actually interested in getting involved in woodlands, and she wanted to you know to to buy a share in a woodland. Mm-hmm. So we went and had a look at this wood, and then. Um, uh, yeah, our friend Gudrun was also there, and she said she would join in as well if if we got it. So we looked at this woodland and fell in love with it. Uh, and it was in in this county of Herefordshire, which nobody knew anything much about in those days. And yeah, so we phoned up the agents and said we'd like to buy it. And uh, we phoned them up on Monday, and they phoned back on Tuesday morning and said, "If that was a serious offer, you've got it." Hmm. <laughs> uh, so there were four of us. There was Tamsin, Gudrun, and me, and then another guy called Chris, who we we he actually had a look at the place himself as well, and then we we dropped in on him as well. 
uh, and this will have been in 93, spring of 93. And so as everyone advised, and it's really, really good advice, if you do happen to buy a woodland, then just sit on it without doing too much for a year and see see it through a, a season. Right. Mm. Um, and we put a track in and we built a workshop. And it, this is for Gudrun and me to, to run courses. Uh, and so we shared it. Uh, and we did very well working it between the two of us for you know t- about 10 summers i think nice uh and then people came and went from the group we we'd we'd got another three members of the group everybody put five thousand pounds in we paid uh just over twenty five thousand for it which left us ten thousand to um to spend on building the track and infrastructure and laying water on and things like that mm-hmm. um but after about 10 years then things were getting a bit difficult between Gudrun and me. You know, we, we had probably were running about 50% of all the Greenwood courses in the country in this one workshop wow. um, as two separate businesses. Mm. Um, so one of us had to go, so it turned out to be me. Uh, a move which I don't regret now at all, mm-hmm. now with hindsight, because then after a very, very frantic winter, this was 2005, I was searching high and low for places. And then Again, it's a lovely story I'll go into sometime or other. It's not in the book, actually, this, but <laughs> we uh, we hit on this place called Brookhouse Wood, mm-hmm. uh, which is owned by a farmer called Jamie and his wife, mm. Kate, and another uh, shareholder in it. And uh, by which time I'd written this book, Living Wood, which sort of described basically yeah, <laughs> everything I've been talking about for the last hour, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so I, I dropped him a copy of this book, you know, so he knew where I was at and said, look, I, I might be interested in running courses here. And so we set up there and he was going to, he was, found me a place in a, a little wooded valley, which looked sort of okay. And on about the second or third visit there, I, I went up to look out over the edge of the woodland and there was this fabulous view uh, and all you could see was about one or two houses, which is in in the in you know in the middle of England. It's really pretty pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And so we had to work out how I could. He said, "Well, if you can, there's no track, there, there's no access. You can't get there. There's no water. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. If you can lay it all on at your own cost, <laughs> then you can set a workshop up there." <laughs> and then, as these things happen, um, somebody dropped by a woman who worked for the local authority, she dropped by to buy a book and I, I was telling her about it. She said, oh, they've just come up with some new grants for farmers. But she said, one of them is for crafts and tourism. Oh, wow. Perfect. So <laughs> I got in touch about that one. And uh, I, I don't know how the funding worked, but I think, you know, I, I only needed, and my parents had just moved house and they'd given me £5,000. Mm-hmm. So I needed about £5,000. So they had this young kid who was on a placement from a, a, a student you know, student course in something or other. Yeah, you know, they gave him this job, you know, because they had you know, £5,000 they probably just had lying down in, a little, you know, in, in the drawer somewhere in the office. You know? <laughs> they weren't worried about it. And this kid came along and he fell in love with it. And we, <laughs> we got really excited. And so, they, yeah, they gave me the £5,000, no questions asked at all. And so that with my dad's £5,000, I think 9000 of that went into building the track up to the place, mm. which Yoav will use every time he drives up and down there. <laughs> <laughs> and the remaining thousand we we spent on a few poles and a nice big tarpaulin and, and put the workshop up there. So that, that was Brookhouse Wood. Huh. So nice. I was at Clissett Wood from about 1994 uh, till 2004 and then moved up to Brookhouse Wood in 2005. 
and then stayed there for about 10 years. And then I reached, I was reaching 65 and I'd said, you know, I would move out of there when I retired. Hmm. Uh, so then we had, I don't know if you know the term, sorry, this is turning into a monologue, this, isn't it? No, <laughs> it's, no, okay. it's great. It's, it's awesome. great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of the term transhumans? It's what yes. they do in sort of alpine yeah, places. Where they move, you know, they go move, up on they, the animals. They go up onto the onto the meadows in the summer and then come back to the village in the winter. Well, mm. that was by kind of existence, as, <laughs> as I told you, you know, for the previous whatever twenty odd years. So we had my final transhumans. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, t- dear Tamsin suggested getting a friend of ours called Crunchy, who's a you know makes his living with horses in the woods. So he came along with his horse and cart. And we had a big party up there. Crunchy, uh, we piled as much as we could on his horse and cart and uh, uh, came back to our little cottage, Greenwood Cottage here. And uh, <clears throat> there's a nice a friend of mine, Leo, he, he did a lovely film of it. It's on Vimeo. Um, okay. Oh, really? Uh, I've, I've got a link to it, I think, on one of my web pages. So if anyone tries very hard to find it, it's, it's lovely. You might find it a bit boring. I thought you could have edited it a bit tighter. It goes on for about 10 minutes, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fabulous. You know, if you've got 10 minutes with nothing better to do, Leo's film on our transhumans is great. Nice. We'll look that yeah. up. Yeah. You don't hear you don't hear that term a lot. A lot of people think. You don't. There's not many people practice it. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a, uh, there's a transhumans festival um, in the U in the U.S. here in um, certain parts of the country where there's still a lot of grazing going on they'll mm-hmm. they'll all right yeah they'll run yeah. they'll run their sheep uh i don't think they do it with cattle too often but sheep yeah in, in yeah. particular uh, yeah. I, I just like that word it sounds it sounds like transhumanism but it's way better <laughs> it does a bit yeah i suppose it could be taken to uh, something to do with transgender as well maybe yeah. john john come jelly alexander was into it i don't know <laughs> i'll not go further down that path. <laughs> um <laughs> so you were at brookhouse woods you said what uh how long was that? 2015? 10, ten years. Yeah. Okay, 10 years. 2015. You moved out 2015, right? I moved to out 2015. Yeah. It, was, it was a month where we had two red moons, two red moons hmm. in a month. It's supposed oh, to be nice. like the end of the world or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just... And so the idea, the idea was that Barn, who had now gone off and done his own thing very successfully, which you all know about mm-hmm. if you listen to episode four, three, anyway. Yep. Um, he he was sort of lined up to take over, but things went a little bit wrong there. Um, he didn't seem to hit it off with the guy who'd taken over the farm. That was, that was another reason for me moving out. Then there was this young upstart guy from this. He'd spent time working in the city who taken over the farm and didn't really know how how to work with weird green woodworkers. So, <laughs> so anyway, I got out. And, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think Barn would have had a ha- happy time there. But another one of Barn's colleagues called Will. Uh, in fact, the farmer was called Will, and and this guy was called Will as well. They hit it off very well together. So Will and his um, partner Penny, they took over Brookhouse Wood, and they're still up there running it. Right. Uh, but they're kind of taken, I say, a backseat when it comes to the courses. I think Yoav is now the main man for the pole lathe courses. Okay. Because nice. uh, uh, what the what farmer will did was concentrated on glamping you know that term yeah yeah, I've, I've, glamping? Actually, yeah, I've, yeah. I've looked a fair bit at their website because they have a lot of interesting yeah mm-hmm. and they've got they've got some amazing things going on there so i think that keeps will and penny quite busy yeah yeah, that's uh, awesome. yeah. but that's where they have the bowl gathering up there now which is uh, okay. a huge success. Okay, at brookhouse yeah. woods yeah brookhouse nice. wood yeah 
So anyone who goes to the bowl gathering, you, you enjoy the last 400 meters of the track and think that <laughs> blood and sweat went into, the, into, uh, went into that one. That's not easy. <laughs> now, um, you have on here your, the TV show Masterclass, and I did want to bring this up because I do, I do remember seeing this. Um, I, don't, I forget yeah. who we were talking to. Maybe it was, I think it was Owen. Um, probably six, seven, eight years ago, I uh, was really into downloading British TV shows. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I just got whatever I could. I got this really cool one. I forget the fellow's name. Sean something, maybe, where he buys a woodland. Sean, and... uh, there was um, Penn. Um, yeah. He's it... now written a book on baking bread, uh, but he did six six programs not about buying a woodland but it, someone let him go let him loose in a woodland maybe that was the oh, one God. yeah I forget Ro is it robert penn rob penn rob penn rob penn that's yeah that's the one yeah um, yeah he, he he that was an interesting series I, I i took the piss out of that a little bit sorry rob <laughs> <laughs> because he was floundering a lot and again he resorted to recreation that the best source of income was to get a, a guy a, a bunch of mountain bikers to come and build a track and then pay for using it right. which i thought was a nice one but in the final episode he went to um dave dave i'm looking at my wife now dave jackson they got dave jackson to basically give him the answers as to how to how to make a living out of uh, a small woodland yeah and dave has had to work very hard and he he does a lot of demos and courses and things like that. Mm. It, it it basically, you know, it's running courses is. It if, seems if like you it. can put up with. It. Not everyone has the right kind of quirky personality to carry it off. Um, he says arrogantly, <laughs> um, but uh, it was only. I, I have to say, it was only through doing all this stuff and getting out there and doing demonstrations mm -hmm. that I, I've sort of got this ability to be able to to talk to people and, and run courses. I remember when I was a countryside ranger, I don't know if I told you that one, but I was a countryside ranger it. when I left the university. Yeah. Um, countryside ranger. And they sent me off with a load of slides to do a slideshow for a, you know, a local group. And I got about 10 minutes in and I just seized up. I just froze. And, and you know, fortunately I had a, a, an assistant with me and he took over and for years i wouldn't speak to the public mm. at all and it wasn't until i got a poll aid between me and the, <laughs> the public <laughs> that i actually felt safe talking to, to yeah. people you know yeah. I, could, I could hold yeah. hold a conversation in on an individual basis mm -hmm. but i couldn't do this kind of thing not not conceivably i'd have been scared scared yeah, that's interesting you mentioned I that i heard a, yeah. i heard an anecdote recently of a uh, some guy, one of the, one of the podcasts I listen to, the fellow does some like marketing something. But this is what he said was, they'd get people in there, they try to teach them how to you know market something, and they didn't know how yeah. to talk. And the one example yeah. was uh, Carmelo Anthony. He's a basketball player. Yeah. And they have him in the front of the room, and he's just fumbling around. And they're like, give him a basketball, and they give him a basketball. Yeah. And next, once he has yeah. a basketball in his hand, he just all yeah. of a sudden it's natural. He doesn't have to think yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, there are no end of people who, you know, have come through, you know, like, like you say, I've, I've sort of had people do an assistantship with me for a bit and, and they come in, you know, not, not full of confidence. Mm. And all, all except one, I think, have gone out, you know, sort of flourishing and you know, blossoming and gone out into the big wide world and made it for, for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Which makes me feel very, very proud. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um... So yeah, back to the masterclass show. I oh yeah, in the, in the process of downloading a bunch of British TV shows. Um, yeah, uh, which I'm sure is illegal. So 
Uh, <laughs> I plead the fifth. Um, I came across the masterclass because I would just, you know, search up the terms that I wanted to watch. Um, and I found the show and I, I, I know I have it somewhere on like an old hard drive, but I don't remember exactly all the details of it. But I do remember the chair making and these people, did they have skill or I can't remember if they like came into it with some experience or if it was crash course. There were three, there were three of them. This was, you know, a reality show thing. Mm. And um, I've forgotten the name of the guy. Oh God, he's um, Monty Don ran the uh, yeah, yeah. ran the thing. He he was the expert. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the guy whose site they, uh, hey, Guy Mallinson. That's it. Oh, it's wonderful in having a wife with a memory. <laughs> and Guy Mallinson had contacted me about four or five years earlier, saying he was going to start running some green woodwork courses. And did I know anyone who would be a good tutor? So I gave him two names, and one of them, I doubt Tamsin can remember his name, and I'm awfully sorry, I've forgotten his name now, the, the guy who did it. But this, about five years later, then Monty Don and his team descended on Guy to do this program. And it was really funny when we saw the, the program. They were, you know, because I move on all the time. I'm always trying out new things and saying, no, nah, no, nah, that's uh, so old-fashioned. You don't do it like that now. And they were using exactly the techniques I'd been using five earlier, five years earlier, you know. But, um, so I was a bit miffed that they, they did the, the show at Guy's place and not at my place. But uh, again, when I, when I found out the shit he'd had to put up with for five weeks, with all these TV people running around oh the place and telling them what to do and what not to do. And the uh, good old guy, he insisted that uh, when they had a judge to come in, yeah, you, you'll have all these things with David Colwell and is it? No, not David. What's it? Oh God. What's the name of the guy? The British guy who's made it big over in all your celebrity things. Right. Anyway, he comes, you know, he comes on and he's, he does all the sort of judging. Oh, thing. Simon, well, anyway, Simon Cowell. Simon, Simon yeah. Cowell, that's it. Simon. Yeah, I had to be Simon Cowell. Simon Scowell. <laughs> Simon Scowell. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So they, they, they asked me to come down for three three days and judge it. And that that was wonderful. Right. And, uh, yeah, we had Friday. I, I think, you know, I went, I went down for one day. And there were people about, and then on Sunday there was nobody about, and so there was a very sweet girl, I think called Sarah, who'd done a really nice job with very little experience whatsoever, and she was struggling a little bit. So you know, I gave her a bit of a hand, and then then Monty Don, who'd been presenting it, you know, he, he came in on the the final day, and uh, yeah, we just had a great laugh. And again, I I, I took a bit of, uh, you know, yeah, made a bit of a joke of it. There was a guy there who was doing what Guy Mallinson had probably taught him to do, and that's get everything really, really perfect. And he was much more intent on getting everything perfect than he was on making an object that you could sit on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, his chair collapsed when I sat on it. So it was down oh to Sarah Sarah, and the other guy, who again, whose name I forget, who I think was actually, he had his own woodwork shop, and truth be known, he actually shot back home for the last few days to put his chair together. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so he had to win, but yeah, I had great fun teasing him, you know, sort of right. hinting that Sarah might have won it. Um, so yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, but the 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 outcome of that is, you know, that was in the in the uh, autumn fall, and then it went out the following spring in February, I think. And Tamsin and I just spent the whole weekend on the phone. It was just hot. It was just buzzing. Wow. And the, that that then that was two thousand and ten. Mm. Uh, and that 
kept me going until I retired because I'd been struggling to get people to come on the courses. You know, I'd run some courses that were half full. Mm. But after that, in fact, that enabled us to put on um, two extra courses, which earned me an extra £6,000. And this is one of my proudest achievements was that I, I cut that money into four and gave a quarter of it to the Green Party, to a woman called Caroline Lucas, who was standing as uh, to be a, a member of Parliament in Brighton. And they were desperate for money to print leaflets. And so I phoned them up and said, look, I can give you £1,500. And they said, well, if you if you give us £1,600, you have to go down as a as a um, you know corporate sponsor. I said, oh, yeah, 1600 then. So somewhere <laughs> somewhere on the record is Abbott's Living Wood as a, as a corporate sponsor of the Green Party. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so she got into Parliament. She's our one and only Green MP. Yeah. So nice. I like to think I had a little hand in helping her. <laughs> nice. out, so. So that show is far, far more important than, than any making any chairs or anything like that. <laughs> so that show was really helpful marketing then. Eh? It, it, yeah. it really, really was. Yeah, it really That's was. That's funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, it is. Hey, Mike. Yeah, that was my 10 minutes of fame. I was on there for almost exactly 10 minutes. You know, the, the old That's cliche. Perfect. Mike, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the technical aspects of chair making. I, I've done some, uh, you know, some, I wouldn't say a chair. I've, I've done some stools and some benches. Um, for our house and I've always oh yeah we're getting around talking to that kind of stuff yeah yeah Yeah, I mean you know we've talked (laughs) so much about chair making and what you do I want to kind of get into the nitty-gritty stuff of how you actually make a chair and so I've done some stuff at home but it's always been hard for me figuring out the angles of how the legs splay out and you know so forth and boring the holes and that stuff so um I mean if maybe you can give us a rundown of some building a basic chair I mean what what kind of what kind of work? There, there are, you know, there are two basic families of chairs. There's the Windsor chairs that have a slab seat and everything sockets into that, and usually you've got some steam bent bits. Right. And then there's frame chairs. Right. And with the pole lathe and the chair bodges, I started off just on Windsor chairs, mm-hmm. and then slowly as time went on, I, I introduced some of the frame chairs. And then when I met John to be Jenny Alexander in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he had a, a big effect on me then. And then I came back by chance, then got together with Tamsin and we moved to Herefordshire. And here, you know, I was saying about the the, the craft culture following the trees. Mm-hmm. Well, here the tree that grows best is ash trees, which are behave in a different way, really, from beech. They lend themselves to cleaving and mm-hmm. bending and getting long, thin, delicate components. Mm-hmm. And so the Herefordshire chairs are very similar to the chair that Dave Sawyer was making on Drew's courses and that Jenny Alexander was making. So um, <laughs> so that's the kind of chair that I, I've specialised in now. For the When I moved to Brookhouse Wood in 2005, mm-hmm. I stopped doing Windsor chairs altogether, so okay. I just do those. So if you really want to know how to do it, you either get hold of Jenny Alexander's Make a Chair from a Tree, which oh, is okay. groundbreaking, yeah. or you get Going with the Grain by Mike Abbott, which is uh, <laughs> a poor second. But um, And hand-in-hand uh, hand with that goes the Veritas Tenon Cutter. Mm, okay. um, there, there was a guy here called Peter Hindle who'd been making tenon cutters, which you use by hand. But I'd... Uh, you know, in the sort of late nineties, I heard about the Veritas tenon cutters, right. and um, I I didn't like the sizes they went because the thing that I the, the profound thing that I learned in the states is this ideal of idea of uh, shrinkage, wooden shrinkage, and you mm-hmm. know wet dry um, 
joinery. Mm-hmm. I've got a slightly different take on it from um, the standard American take, mm-hmm. I think, on it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of brought that back over here again, and finally bit the bullet and started after talking to I think a guy called Wally at Veritas. We had long to come. Yes, probably. I think it was emails in those days, yeah, uh, about sizes and shrinkages and things like that. But uh, basically, it works on the fact that you've got 10% shrinkage mm-hmm. uh, radially and about 5% shrinkage the other way. So you end up with a slightly oval joint. And so if you, uh, you guys work, guys work in fractions, don't you? So if you, yeah. if you make a 5 eighths tenon, then that will fit if you squeeze it tight into a 9 16th joint. Mm. And um, so these normally the joints are, are sort of five eighths or even three quarters for the sake of people who are working metrically. Five eighths is 16 mil and three quarters is 19 mil. There's some nice exact correspondences there. But uh, so we were doing five eighths or 16 mil mortises and tenons. So then stepping down to nine sixteenths, it's surprising that that little, little bit smaller meant that the chairs actually flexed and i found it a little bit disconcerting at first and a lot of people do when they sit on the chairs that we make on my courses Mm. but you know the chair i'm sitting on at the moment and leaning back on this has been sat here in daily use for 10 years wow and and can you see (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it it it, it moves and you know there's a good inch inch of movement i should think in 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 the top of the leg when i vigorously move it Wow, but it's not a squeak hmm. in it, and so I really got to like that, um, and so that's what I kind of play on with my chair making. So uh, now we were using the tenon cutter. There wasn't much point using the pole lathe. Right. So basically, to to make it one of these frame chairs, you get a length of ash, or if, if you're lucky enough to have hickory, then hickory. I expect I never made a hickory chair, mm-hmm. and you cleave it. And you shave it, and you put a tenon cutter over the ends, right. and then you drill a load of holes, and you squeeze them all together. We squeeze them together really tight. And for that one, I owe a great um, debt to uh, Neville and his son Lawrence, his, his young lad, Lawrence Neal, who's the same age as me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in fact, Drew, it was through Drew coming over here that we went to visit them in their workshop about... <gasps> 25 years ago i think Mm. and that's where i first saw Mm. this same technique being used and i have a feeling that um, neville the father had learnt some of that jointing method from john alexander on a workshop over here in about 1990 ish before i was up and running Mm. Um, so this is again it's a very much a sort of anglo-american venture co-venture really Mm. but that that's the whole essence behind my chair making so we squeeze these things together without using any glue and you know what can happen you know the joints can can sometimes come drift apart a little bit um but like i say you know we've got chairs in the house here which have been put together using these methods um i seem to remember i was running a course in denmark which must have been in the late 90s and i was only working half days so i spent the other half day using this wonderful drying cabinet they had and this is where i really experimented with all these techniques and things like that so mm. um yeah that that's 
that's the the essence behind the the chair making that we do but uh y- yeah you need five days if you want to know how to make a chair yeah <laughs> <laughs> now the t- but the lovely thing the lovely thing about it I, I think about this a lot compared to what barn is doing and uh-huh. all you sloyd people doing certainly spoons and to a large extent bowls as well i think you need sharp tools and you need a good eye mm. neither of which i'm very good at <laughs> the nice thing about a chair is i've spent 25 years working out the design and, and pinching ideas from everybody under the sun yeah. and also refining the techniques so we can start off with some sopping fresh ash logs on monday morning and by Thursday evening, they've got a really rock solid, no, not rock solid, tree solid uh, <laughs> chair uh, by Thursday night. And then Friday, we put the seat on it. That's lovely. And so I've, I've refined the, you know, the logistics of it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, I suppose it almost sounds a bit demeaning, but any idiot could come along and make a chair with <laughs> me, make a really nice chair. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I shouldn't say that in public, but uh, <laughs> it's a good yeah. marketing slogan. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Abbott's chair making course. Any idiot can make a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And have a good time. You don't need to worry too much away. You yeah. don't have to get all that tight. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people do. Some people more in the old days when I was still a bit more hesitant about it. But I, I've I've actually stopped doing complicated chairs on the courses and just refined it down to the simple either lath back or uh, spindle back. Just a very simple chair. Mm-hmm. Uh and yeah, I'm going for what I say, the one thing I learned during three years at university, apart from cooking and shopping, was was logic, which is refining everything down to its simplest elements. Mm. And so I have got this chair with a lot of help from John, Jenny, Alexander, um, and Drew and other people, a lot of other people in fact. Um, this this is the quintessential chair. And uh yeah, and I've been tweaking that in lockdown, in fact. A friend came and did some filming last summer. And then um, that set me thinking. And so on a few, the few couple of the last courses last summer, we were, we were tweaking the method of assembling it. So I can't tell you how to do it because we've got to try it all out again this <laughs> summer. That's the infuriating thing. This is what keeps people, some people coming back year after year, you know, because I, I change things. Mm-hmm. But if it all works out, it's even simpler now. Hmm. <laughs> lovely do you have a lot of americans that come over for your courses very few actually we had a long time ago came over from manhattan oh wow uh, he was he was doing a thing in in derbyshire he was doing going on a walking tour or something like that i thought he'd, he'd do i can't remember it was it was it yeah it was a a chair making course but he said what he really wanted to learn was was rustic chairs you know stick chairs so i pulled out this book making rustic furniture here it is oh uh, bye <laughs> bye oh, sh- sorry about this uh, bye anyway whoever whatever his name is interesting book and he's gone and done about another five chairs since barry hansen is the guy who gave it to me he's the illustrator it's by daniel mack sterling lark book and if you look in the back and look up all the all the people who are making rustic chairs, I think about 50% of them are, are in New York State. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so he went oh, back wow. to Manhattan, <laughs> having learned how to make English chairs. Yeah. Um, but no, not many other Americans. No, we, we, we've had yeah, people from Japan, a uh, few people from New Zealand, uh, yeah, lots of people from mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. But you've got your own culture over there. And right. in fact, there was, a, there was a, this guy came on a course with me and he'd, got in touch with i think 
possibly was it Roy Underhill or or one of the um, uh, no what it was he went on a Windsor chair making course with a guy in Yorkshire over here and he said he wanted to learn making ladder back chairs and this guy said oh yeah you want to go over to the states probably to Drew's place mm-hmm. and so he looked a little bit and then he phoned up over in the states and they said well why don't you go on the course with Mike Abbott down the road from you so <laughs> so he did nice um, mm. when was that. When was that? Oh, that was a long time ago. This was um, uh, Jervis. When, yeah, I've known him a good long time. This is probably about 15, 20 years ago, I should think. That's interesting because I was just going to ask you, I have a friend in Vermont and he, I'd be surprised if it was the same person, but he, um, I guess it was back in the late 90s, he came over to the UK and he was he stayed with Ben Law for a number of months. I think he, All right. I think yeah. he did a whole season in the woods with Ben. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But back when yeah. Ben was living in a bender, <laughs> yeah um, i didn't his name is mark um Krawchick. i don't know if you came across him i don't think so there's someone who's now taken over from running drew's courses um is that vermont way uh it's not know, not but, him, i don't no. think that name doesn't ring a bell no i don't think i know interesting and then dave, dave sawyer who i i met once when he came over here and he was uh, he started off doing that Italian ladderback chair on Drew's courses, and then he got into Windsor chairs. And now I gather his son has taken over running the business. Do you know Dave Sawyer and his son? I'm familiar with his name. I don't. I don't know him now. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course, you guys are more into into the slide stuff than the chair making. Yeah, there's a whole world of chair makers out there as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's an interesting topic because. You know, in my mind, when I think Sloyd, I think of all the woodcrafts and handcrafts kind of mm-hmm. melded under one right, um, right, yeah, ideology, if it were. Certainly. I think over here, we would kind of use the word Sloyd for, um, yeah, mainly spoon carving. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get around to the, the final question of the session, <laughs> then I'll elucidate. You're well aware of, huh? Because <laughs> talking to, um, to to Joga, he, he also... You know, he also sees Sloyd as everything. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Revol- Is that right? Yeah, know, revolving around trees yeah. and in the land, and yeah, right, um, yeah. And I get yeah. the sense that in, in Sweden, that's very much the roots of that word. Is comes from that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But did yeah, have you yeah. done, have you? I mean, I know chairs are kind of like your passion. Have you done much else? Like, have you done any spoon carving besides the call spoons back in the day? Or um, I started out basically you know going through that old woodland crafts book and we would we did hurdles and hay rakes mm. and um the other thing of course that i've done and there was the one thing that i did nearly all the time when i was doing my pole aid demos and i don't know why more of you um pole aiders don't don't do it is making babies <laughs> rattles the little thing with three little rings on especially you two guys oh yeah uh, if you've got young babies uh, about four months old when they start teething four or five months old that's that's when you want one of these things and they won't you won't be able to get it out of their little hands um <laughs> and this makes a beautiful demonstration it takes about 20 minutes from start to finish mm-hmm. and uh you know i could i could sell those all the time nice um, that, that's that's spindle turning right which has got to be easier than than bowl turning to my mind can't remember how that came up now <laughs> just asking so what other types of things you've you've spent time making mm-hmm. or if you still yeah so, so basically i honed the courses down to the thing you know getting sort of maximum bang for your buck i think as people would say yeah um and making chairs uh you know is, is something which i sell the chairs for the same price as it is it, it um you know it is to come on a course okay 
uh, and so you seem to be getting your money's worth if you come and make your own. Yeah. People would much rather come on and make their own than they would um, mm-hmm. buy one off them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing you're also really well known for, at least f- f- in my experience and what I've seen from being online, is your lumber horse mm. uh, shape horse <laughs> design. Mm-hmm. Um, that's made the rounds a lot because uh, I come, I came into woodworking from the permaculture aspect, and yeah. I think the first time I saw that was through. Uh, the per- Is that in Permaculture Magazine? Yeah, Permaculture Magazine had a... Yeah, and they had a guy with a cowboy hat riding it. And I thought, <laughs> what on earth is that about? And then, I, of course, I'd, f- I'd forgotten all about the pun. You know, you, you probably never even heard of Champion the Wonder Horse. But no. I, I, when I was a kid, that that's what we had on the telly. Champion the, Lumber Horse, <laughs> uh, the, the Wonder Horse. So it was a nice little play on words. And uh, that o- owes itself to um, Nick Gibbs again, the editor of Quirkus Magazine. Okay. He... he he was trying to again get people into green woodwork, but without having to own your own woodland. Or um, and he wanted people to be able to get their equipment together, you know, out standard bits of timber. So he was nagging me to do that for when he came out with his magazine, um, uh, Living Woods. But also there was a, a a woman came on a course, and she'd obviously seen something online. Uh, Gillian, I think she was called, and she wanted to make a, a shaving horse with me based on that. And my first first reaction was to saw it all up and throw it on the fire and <laughs> start with a, a tree, you know. But we ran with the idea and it, it's it's worked well, yeah. And it's not a pretty thing. It's not a pretty sight. <laughs> and unless you unless you have a cushion to sit on it, it's, it's not very comfy either. But uh yeah, I went through a phase where I you know when I had eight people on the course I, I would have you know, sort of five or six lumber horses and five or six of the old style horses. And as the course went on, they would all gravitate towards the lumber horse. Mm, nice. um, and to some extent, I owe something there to um, Owen Jones, who makes swill baskets. Okay, He'd yeah. be a lovely guy to get on here as yeah. well. He's really nice. Um, and the traditional horse that he uses that has a sort of parallel uh, you know, horizontal bed on it, big long horizontal bed. Okay. Uh, so I, I gleaned some some ideas from that as hmm. well. So it's a bit of a hodgepodge the idea, but yeah, yeah I just wanted something that people could cobble together quickly. And uh, Irish friend of mine, uh, forgotten his name now. He's got a lovely uh, sort of speeded up video on how to make one. On yeah, YouTube I've, I've made well, two of them. They're very easy. You can make yeah. them in mm-hmm. like an hour and a half, two hours. Very yeah, simple. Right. Very yeah. simply. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. work. Yeah. They work great. I use them. Yeah. I use yeah. mine all the time. Yeah. Uh, for various yeah. different things. Good. I haven't made any yeah. chairs yet, though. So. <laughs> 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 I'm planning on. Yeah, yeah. Chair. Mike and I, we're, yeah, we don't, we don't, we haven't gone to chairs yet. It's mm-hmm. Mike's probably closer yeah. to it than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it's definitely you, you need you need a setup. Yeah, you need a shaving horse. You don't need a pole lathe certainly nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and again, I've tried to simplify all the kit that we use for that. I used to have a fairly sophisticated steam bending kit, but mm-hmm. the lever I use now, um, you know, it wouldn't take you half an hour to make. Uh, you need something to steam to generate steam in. Mm. Um, uh, so you're setting it all up is a bit of a thing. Which again, if I'm honest plays nicely into my hands because people just keep going back on a course <laughs> if they learn how to make a spoon then all you do is buy a, you know an axe off robin and a few other hands yeah and and, uh, and you're away but uh yeah oh we'll just go back and do another one with mike <laughs> that's awesome well um 
it's getting on now. We've we've we're about a half yeah. and a half in on um covered approaching a, bedtime. Covered a lot of ground. Yeah. It's been great having you on, Mike. I really appreciate you sharing your it's story. It's been great fun. I've loved every minute of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So much so much history to share with, with the world, you know? That's what happens when you get old. <laughs> it is it is cool though. Just, I, I really appreciate your perspective because um I can only imagine, you know, coming up in your day and, and seeing this craft and being so uh you know fascinated by it but not knowing if it was even viable to hold on into the future mm. and now it's uh, yeah it's kind yeah, of like a trend yeah. in a way you know it's it's yeah it's kind of yeah. incredible yeah um, yeah yeah so it's great seeing all you younger folks running with it as well you know? yeah 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 you know yeah. I, I did have one last question i was you know besides the mm. internet what do you think the internet's helped spread the idea but obviously like it's something people are yearning for or else they wouldn't uh, mm-hmm. get into it. What do you, what do you think is going on there with people, um, you know, signing up for your course or wanting to buy a woodland? What do you think is driving that? Well, yeah. Um, I, I, I remember describing this once upon a time when I set out, you know, it was all brown rice and sandals and scraggy beards <laughs> for the people that were coming on the course. With me. But now you get all sorts. I get a lot of people who spend all their time sat behind a computer screen and just want to get yeah. away from it. Right. Uh, I get a lot of um, jobbing carpenters and joiners come on the course because they're fed up with, you know, the, the monotony of what they're doing. Right. It's it's. Yeah, not many people. There are not many Barnes and Owens and Yoavs around, um, but there is an increasing number mm-hmm. um, who are doing it for a living. But certainly the vast majority of people who come on my courses, at least, are people who, who just want a nice break. Sure. Um, there was there was a guy, namesake of mine, called Nick Abbott, who was at one point, he was chairman of the Association of Pole Tennis, and he had been a senior partner in a legal firm. And he packed that up. I think he, you know, been having heart problems with stress and things, and became a, a Greenwood chairmaker with his wife Katie, huh. who's still going strong. Mm. Um, and he said, you know, he'd go into the office, and you know, they'd be talking about, you know, the, the yacht they'd been sailing on, or the, mm. the get lovely, fabulous weekend playing golf and things. And he'd talk about the woods, <laughs> his woods, and how he, how many trees he'd cut down, and what he'd made that. And they, they just couldn't understand the other person's <laughs> point of view. But um, And in fact, one of the slides I showed at the World Turning Conference was somebody on a trim tripper or something like this, a, a little device that you stand on and off. You just jump on and off it and, and it exercises you, a little leg <laughs> exercising machine. And people, have, you know, the times I've walked past places and seen people getting exercise like that. And then they say, "Isn't it hard work?" Well, one of one of um, Drew's guys who uh, came over on the tour with him, you know, I was showing him the pole. He said, "Oh, gee, man, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather, um, uh, rather get an electric lathe and spend the rest of the time fishing." And I just came out, so I'd rather go to the fish market and buy a fish and spend my time on the pole. You know, you different go. people have different different desires, right. but more and more people are, are wanting to be creative, and if they can get fit at the same time uh, and i mean if you look at ben orford uh, he's ripped uh, the, <laughs> he, he, he yeah he was a scrawny little kid when he first came to us um i'm sure it's not all just from using uh, the kit, but, uh, oh the porridge uh, yeah it's a, new, it's a new workout routine <laughs> yeah, on the sh- i tell you on the shaving if you're using the shaving horse all day long you you, you develop some biceps yeah, yeah for yeah. sure 
yeah. speaking that's of benefits, so that, that's why that's why that's why people are doing it. Yeah, they, it's, it's healthy. Yeah. yeah, if you get any of my books, I'll bang on there again. It's it's not just that you're learning a skill, but you you're out in the fresh air, especially yeah. if you do a course in the woods or in our lovely garden. You yeah. know, in a pleasant environment. Yeah, the nice thing about a course you with other like-minded people. They're mm-hmm. you know they're all nutters to come on the course together. Yeah, and um, you know, yeah, people come for a whole host of of reasons hmm. like like you said it earlier mike i think everybody's trying to get away from the rats race mm-hmm. yeah 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 well mike uh we do have our our i guess it's our famous last question <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i've been spending the last two hours mulling over what i'm gonna say <laughs> uh yeah what does lloyd mean to you yeah i i, I thought about it after after all the other podcasts and it's a very simple answer for me it's basically what really sunquist does and what yoga does now. Um, so from my point of view, it is spoon carving and bowls and doing that kind of stuff. I don't really consider chair making as a slide. I mean, you know, I'm not making a thing about it at all. If that's you know, if people want to include it there, I, I would tend to call that uh, green, you know, chair making, I'd, I'd classify as green woodwork, mm, but mm. you know, rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But as soon as I hear the <laughs> word sloyd, then I just have this picture of Willie Sunquist springs into my head. Interesting, you know, yeah, that's simple, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. I, I was fortunate to meet him when he came over to England oh, to, to run a course, and that's on that same course was, um, well, that same weekend anyway, was Robin Wood and ah. Ben Orford, and uh. Uh, yeah barn wasn't on the scene just then but that that again had a huge influence i haven't even talked about that yet but that that influenced a lot of people over hmm. well it sounds like we might have to have you back on to uh elaborate on some of the the details we missed <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay sure. you've got to get drew langster and don weber and del Stubbs is someone else yeah as well. we're, I'd love we're to, chatting I'd love with him i've been emailing with him we're, we're going to try and get him on yeah yeah um, great. yeah we want to get all the people that have really laid, all the old timers all the old timers <laughs> that's right all the old timers <laughs> like, who laid yeah. the groundwork before uh before their voice is gone you know yeah yeah, we can teach. And full credit to you guys for getting this podcast together. I think it's brilliant. I Thank really, you. I yeah. really hope it takes off. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. we're we're working on it, yeah. um, <laughs> episode by episode. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, giving it momentum. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it's been a fantastic chat. I really appreciate you coming on, Mike. Um, yeah. Where can people find you if they want to look you up on the web? And a little house in the middle of Herefordshire. <laughs> uh, but if you if you Google Mike Albert, there, there, there's an American actor. I think he's long long down the list after me, though. I think um, <laughs> my website's wooworkgoingwiththegrain.org. But if you just put Mike Albert in on the web, you'll come across me somehow. Awesome. Rather, I should think uh, I'm on Facebook and yeah, just and very Instagram. very. New- and Instagram, thanks to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll put all the links in the show notes as well as I have a okay. long list of all the different things you mentioned so people can do yeah. their homework. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, hey, I, I've got to say, actually, I've, I seem to have had a bit of a surge of um, my books selling, whether this is a result of you talking to Barn and Owen. I don't oh, know. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we, we try to link, you know, anytime we, we're trying to fill our show notes with all the names that are mentioned and stuff because a lot of people will message us and say, hey, I, I want to learn more about so-and-so that whoever mentioned on that episode. So, um, mm. yeah, hopefully it'll drive more, you know, interest towards everybody that is, uh, in the show notes. So, yeah. 
Who yeah, knows? Okay. Maybe Sloydcast helps sell books. I hope it does. Hope it does. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe chairs and even courses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. We're no, yeah, we're no master class, but uh, you know. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. Now it's bedtime. So right. thanks ever so much. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Take Bye. care. Bye.